Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. And there's a rising class of people, agricultural entrepreneurs, merchants, um, manufacturers, and the like, and they want political power. They've got authority locally, and they've got some economic power. They're wanting political power. That's author James D.R. Phillips talking about his new book, Two Revolutions and the Constitution, How the English and American Revolutions Produced the American Constitution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Discover Concord, the town where our American history began. Plan to visit and explore historic Concord, Massachusetts. For more information, visit discoverconcordma.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is James D.R. Phillips. And he's promoting a new book he's written called Two Revolutions and the Constitution, How the English and American Revolutions Produced the American Constitution. Our discussion with James is an interesting one. I enjoyed it a lot. I'm glad you'll get a chance to hear it. But he pauses the idea that the uh, revolutions of the 17th century uh, planted in the minds of English than to be British citizens, what their roles in their government should be. And he believes when you examine the two separate revolutions that really changed English and then British history, uh, you'll find some striking similarities. It's a wonderful discussion, and I encourage you to buy the book. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with James D.R. Phillips. James D.R. Phillips, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Brady. I'm thrilled to be here. James, tell us about your background. Well, I studied as an undergraduate at Oxford University in the UK and at the University of Sydney in Australia. Um, I've been a lawyer for more than 35 years, and through that time, when I've had the opportunity, I've kept up my reading of history, in which I have a very deep interest. James, why did you decide to write this book now? Well, there are two main reasons, Brady. I think one... Uh, particularly amongst younger people in Australia, perhaps it's the same in America, historical knowledge seems to have um, declined a bit. So I think there's a real need to uh, get uh, good historical knowledge out there in a uh, clear format in a way that um, uh, people can relate to and that's relatively accessible for people who don't are not familiar with the subject. So that's a general uh, point. And then for me, this particular interest in this topic is that um, I wanted very much to see if I could contribute to the exercise I just mentioned, writing a, a clear history about an important topic. And for me, this was the logical topic. I think it's one of the most important in um, modern history. And as a lawyer, it has the advantage that you know I can have a good understanding of the constitutional concepts and the um, very important developments that were represented by the Constitution. What did the average Englishman expect from their government 
in the 17th century? Well, I guess it's like this. The, firstly, the political class is not enormous, right? A lot of the population is not politically active. They don't see themselves as having uh, political rights or being involved in the process of government. But in the 17th century in England, I think what you're seeing is you've, you've just come off the back of you know Shakespeare, the uh, English Renaissance. You've got uh, English has stared down the Spanish, Spanish defeated the, the Spanish and the Spanish Armada. England's rapidly growing in population, becoming more prosperous, becoming a trading nation. Um, and there's a rising class of people, agricultural entrepreneurs, merchants, um, manufacturers and the like. And they want political power. They've got authority locally and they've got some economic power. They're wanting political power. At the same time, you've got this sort of residue of the medieval period where the Stuart kings, supported by the aristocracy, uh, think they should be running the country. Uh, And the Stuart kings actually think they have a divine right pretty much to do what they choose uh, and regard parliament as an irritant. So th- those are the main dynamics, I think, is sort of, and that's one of the reasons why it's such a fascinating period, that there's this sort of fulcrum between the uh, residue of the medieval world and this emerging new dynamic world. How did the English Revolution change this perception, James? Well, what that revolution was largely about, and the revolution, let's say, was in two stages. The different names are given to the two stages, um, but we'll, I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, what that was really about was that rising class of you know, newly economically empowered people having a say in government. Um, so what happens first of all is there's a, a civil war when uh, Charles I defies parliament, seeks to uh, raise taxes and revenue, seeks to um, have a standing army, takes a whole lot of other measures for which parliament says its approval is required and he defies them and there's a civil war. At the end of the Civil War, and this is of massive importance, and it's very important to the American story as well, the uh, Parliament uh, takes Charles as a prisoner and they try him for tyranny and they chop off his head and then they establish a republic in England. Uh, and, you know, that, that the Parliament, uh, parliamentary side in the Civil War and the people who uh, took that action against the king were from that new class of rising people. Quite a few of them were Puritans, and quite a few of them were, as I say, from that rising economic class, agricultural entrepreneurs, merchants, manufacturers, and the like. So it really represents the crystallization of those dynamics. And then that's furthered later in the century in what's commonly called the Glorious Revolution or the second phase or the main part of the English Revolution, main part in that it left the lasting legacy where there's a, a Bill of Rights is introduced, the King or Queen becomes clearly subject to Parliament going forward and England really starts to become a constitutional monarchy. James, let's talk about Parliament. You write uh, at length about it in your book. Why was it such a game changer? Well, it's the organ through which this new class asserts itself. Okay, so uh, they didn't have to um, use an extra legal method. They used uh, gaining seats in Parliament and pursuing their interests through Parliament. And then what they did was they just didn't they didn't just accept the indignity that some Parliaments had accepted in the past of being ignored by the King. They absolutely insisted upon their rights, and actually 
twice in the in the 1600s the english get rid of a king and in both cases the effort is largely driven through parliament the first time is the one i mentioned where they put him on trial and execute him establish a republic the Stuart kings then come back charles ii and james ii but with the help of william and mary who were sort of also actually members of the Stuart extended Stuart family and um who are from uh who are Dutch, um they get James the Second to flee the country and that's when they really establish they cement the gains of the earlier revolution and this came with the, the Bill of Rights changes to the um coronation oath and other constitutional changes. James England will become an empire. Uh, Englishmen will become Britons. Uh, how did the average American colonist view their role in the governmental system we just talked about? Well, this is vitally important. And one of the things I wanted to explore in the book is this, Brady, that, you know, um, the the founders said they were rebelling in order to protect their rights. And as you know, I was just down at the National Archives, actually, this afternoon, looking at the the original declaration. And as you know, about 70% of that document is the charges against George III, ways in which they say, um, the, the founders say that George III had infringed their rights. Okay, so they say they have all these rights. Where did their perception of their rights come from? And that's, that's really the, the core of why I wanted the book to go back to before the revolutionary period. Because if you just look at the revolutionary period, you see how everything plays out but you don't see where their perception of their rights come from. And um, I think that the, um, the answer lies partly in the founding charters and the founding arrangements for government in the colonies, because don't forget when the first colonies were established, they were very precarious. I mean, as you no doubt know very well, the um, uh, Virginia faced uh, massive problems, you know, starvation, hunger, just subsistence problems, and prosperity problems. And um, the same happened um, with the Mayflower when it arrived um, up in, in Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay. Um, these were, um, you know, precarious starts. And because the communications were so uh, poor and because, um, just as a practical matter, there was some necessity for the um, colonists to have rights, some rights of self-government to determine their affairs. They couldn't make decisions about how to conduct their affairs um, by some sort of relay across the Atlantic Ocean, asking questions and getting approval, etc. So right from the beginning, you have some of these questions that end up being um, pivotal to the revolution of what is the extent of the colonists' lawmaking power? What if they pass a a law that's inconsistent with an English law? What if they pass a law that's consistent with an English law, but the English subsequently pass a law that is inconsistent with that law? Does it automatically amend the uh, American law? So you have all these questions about um, uh, partial self-government, in, in effect, in the colonies from the beginning, and that makes them the um, British Americans, or English Americans and then British Americans, um, uh, unique. They have effectively they have more local political rights than the British in Britain do. Um, uh, so you know that, that 
from from very early on, they're starting to conceive their rights as being enhanced with a local element, um, but also an element of connection with um, Britain. And as you know, of course, they believe, for example, specifically on the matter of tax, that um, they were subject to um, the regulation of trade and the taxation of trade, but they were not subject to direct taxes because... Uh, um, without the, the approval of the local legislatures because they were not directly represented in Parliament. James, on this podcast, we uh, we know that the American Revolution had many causes. Uh, so I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here. If you had to identify what you believe to be the primary cause of the American Revolution, uh, what do you think it, it was? What fueled that fire? Well, I, I'd say, and as, as you... As you pointed out, you and your listeners know very well um, uh, know this topic very well. Uh, but but I would say that the, it's the um, beginning of the assertion by Britain of more control in the early 1860s, for, sorry, 1760s, from 1763 onward with the Stamp Act, etc., and then the Coercive Acts, etc. So, um, and and as you know, that is all at least partly driven by. Um, the need, uh, Britain's need to raise more revenue in order to fund the enormous debt it took on during the Seven Years' War, which was, you know, partially fought or quite substantially fought in um, in North America. So it's when Britain starts to, if you like, to disturb what the Americans see as the constitutional settlement with the Americans by um, starting to treat them more like Britons in Britons in Brittany. <laughs> Sorry. Britons in Britain, rather than treating them as American Britons with enhanced rights and partial independence. Certainly, from my point of view, looking at it from a constitutional angle, that's the uh, that's the driver of the um, uh, of the rebellion, and then um, you know that underlies the uh, declaration itself. James, one of the things I love about your book is that you really clearly show how state constitutions or kind of proving grounds or experimental laboratories for laws and ideas before the the United States Constitution was officially ratified. Um, Could you talk about how they were experimental and what you found? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right, Brady. And um, uh, Gordon Wood um, in the late 1960s and a couple of other scholars started to refocus attention on those state constitutions. Because what you actually have is by the time you get to the convention in Philadelphia in um, 1787, you've had um, more than 11 years of constitution writing experience amongst the, the founders and framers. And that's, that's of you know, enormous importance because... Um, let's say they might have been too inclined to be a bit uh, uh, theoretical. Um, They mightn't have had um, been as confident in their judgments in Philadelphia if they hadn't been able to observe what happened under the state constitutions and in the, uh, and the articles of confederation in the meantime. So actually I think Delaware claims, doesn't it, to have passed the first uh, constitution, but Actually, the first constitution, and and I think that's true if you take the first constitution after the declaration, but New Hampshire was actually out of the blocks first um, before the declaration with a short 940-word 
constitution. And as you might guess from that small number of words, it was really just a document that more or less said, well, um, you know, we've, we don't have um, British government here anymore. What do we have exactly? Well, we're going to continue with our legislature. We're going to, um, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, arrange, make our own arrangements for, uh, for a governor. And it's a very short and practical document. Um, and then I think that's the, the so that, if you like, is the, the urgent need to sort of plug the gap now that um, New Hampshire sees um, Britain no longer being part of its uh, government even before the declaration. The most considered of the state constitutions and, and, and the most sort of learned, if you like, was the, uh, that of Virginia. And, and that's a document in which um, you know, real scholarship and learning is brought to bear. It contains a Bill of Rights. Now, I mentioned before that the English had introduced a, a Bill of Rights of their own in, um, in their revolution in, in, at the end of the uh, 1600s. And the Virginians introduced one for the same reason, more or less, that um, they think there are some fundamental um, rights which can't be subject to tampering by either the executive or the legislature. Um, you know, a number of the founders, as you probably know, had um, quite a bit of knowledge about um, classical, by which I mean ancient Roman and Greek uh, political thought, and more recent um, political thought from people like, um, you know, John Montesquieu um, and uh, Algernon Sidney in particular. Anyway, you see this all very well considered in the Virginian document, and it had an enormous influence on subsequent documents, including the final constitution. And then you see really radical, radically democratic documents like um, the Pennsylvanian constitution, which provides for just a, a single house in its elected assembly. A number of the others have two houses, more or less imitating the colonial structures and in a way an echo of the House of Commons and the House of Commons and the House of Lords in England uh, um, as well. Um, so Pennsylvania just has the one house, it has frequent elections, uh, a weak executive. A weak executive is a feature of a number of these state constitutions um, because um, you know the king is seen as being the principal putative tyrant, and then the governor is seen as, the, as you know, as, as was the instrument of the king's oppression, and therefore is seen as a potential oppressor. Um, so, so the weak executives is also a characteristic of these constitutions. So, and then, and then you have the experience of the of the new, newly formed states now living with these constitutions, and and um, you know, experiencing some of the consequences of a weak executive, experiencing some of the sort of discontinuity and um, everything of, of, of very frequent elections, up to annual elections for members of their elected assemblies. So they start to see, not only do they have a lot of experience in, in, in a, a wide range of different type, uh, different constitutions, they're, they're all Republican and they're all representative government, but they have these other variations. Um, and they're refining their thoughts and, of course, um, a few of them in particular are refining their thoughts, and John Madison is one who comes to mind, but that's something we'll probably get to in a minute. James, why were the Articles of Confederation so inadequate to meet the challenges of the 1780s? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is really interesting, and for me, this is one of the sub uh, topics where being a lawyer really helped a lot. Um, 
because frankly, when I first read the articles, uh, because I'd done quite a bit of work of putting together different uh, legal structures over time, not for governments, but for, for private or public businesses and enterprises and organizations, I could actually predict what were going to be the problems with the Articles of Confederation before I knew what the problems had been, because I read the articles before I knew much about the history of the period. So the first thing is, right, the um, the states basically treat this thing as um, as their agent. They don't give it independent powers. It can only uh, act as their agent and, and, and with their agreement. Now, that has profound importance, and um, that means that when they're looking to levy troops for the um, for the Revolutionary War, they send out requisitions to the states. The states substantially ignore them. I mean, the first year, they requisitioned 75,000 troops. A year later, they had 28,000. The, the, the Continental Army had 28,000 troops. You know, and the, the same... The same thing happened with with um, money. They'd request money, and the states would decline to um, to respond to the request in full. And they have no way of enforcing it. So, uh, no no resources, no way of enforcing. And then, and then another thing you look for as a lawyer is, well, what are the consequences if they disobey? Uh, you know, you you even get to talk during the. Um, Articles, the period of the Articles of Confederation, and astonishingly, this was part of the Virginia Plan, first introduced into the Convention in Philadelphia, that military force could be used to enforce the uh, requirements of the um, of of the Articles, and then of the um, the United States under the Constitution. And that was a proposal; it was soon dropped, but. You know, this is completely bizarre, right? This is like we'll have to wage some sort of civil war in order to enforce our um, our articles or our, uh, and our constitution. And this is one of the reasons why, at the end of the day, the the final constitution is often said to be partly federal but partly national because the um, the the government that is established had direct enforcement powers against the citizens of the United States. It didn't have to go to um, the, the states and say, please, would you enforce something on our behalf, which um, which uh, never happened. So um, that that was one of the um, primary areas: the, the lack of the most important powers, the lack of powers of um, of enforcement, but also, you know, the decision making, as I've already said, was basically all by the states, and you needed a very um, substantial majority of the states, in some cases, unanimity before you could do anything. So it was hopelessly weak from uh, the beginning. And, you know, in the treaty, just to finish that, in the Treaty of Paris, when the, the British recognized the, uh, the, the victory of the, um, of the American colonies, they're very careful, they say. They, they, they treat the parties they're contracting with in this treaty as the 13 states. They're very explicit about that in the first clause of the treaty. They don't re in effect, they don't recognize the United States as a separate nation. And in a sense, that's the correct legal description because all the Articles of Confederation did was establish this sort of cooperative agency framework. They didn't really establish a separate center of government, a separate political entity. 
James, you write that the Constitution, quote, secured the revolution. That idea stayed with me. Uh, How did it do that? Yeah, sure. So there you are in 1787. um, There are problems between the states, particularly in the area of uh, trade, particularly for states that don't have um, ports. They're being... They, they feel that the, the states through which they have to access the markets, both for imports and exports, are exploiting that position. Um, there's, there are problems in international representation for the reason I just mentioned, that in effect the articles don't establish a, um, a, a nation, they establish a sort of a, a cooperative structure. Um, and you're really facing the, the possibility that um, that there won't be a functional union. And what might that look like? I mean, that might look like the articles more or less just sort of fall by the wayside and you have 13 separate states. It might look like the New England colonies get together and form a federation or the the southernmost colonies get together and form a federation. Uh, You're potentially looking at, you know, rivalrous nations along the Atlantic seaboard rather than uh, a single nation. And what would that do for the aspirations of the um, of the revolution? Well, it certainly um, um, would mean that the focus wouldn't just be on you know building a great new republic or even a series of republics because there'd be a lot of um, friction. Probably the the resulting uh, nations would be um, uh, less prosperous. So. Uh, the, the reason I, I, I said that it secured the revolution was that, uh, to me, whilst it, when the revolution began in 1776, um, a government of the sort that emerged from the Constitution, part federal and part national, mightn't have been what was on people's minds. They were principally focused on uh, the independence of the states and recognising that there was a need for some cooperative arrangement between them. Um, by shoring up the um, union and making it real, this, the constitution uh, you know, resulted in this very um, dynamic um, and focused uh, country going forward. So that's what I meant by, um, by secure the gains. James D.R. Phillips, thank you for joining us. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.